I mean, put it simply, right? It's good for immigrant families to have regular contact with native-born American families. It helps them integrate into American society. It helps them learn language. It helps them uh, learn these little cultural norms that are hard to figure out, but that really make uh, American society tick. Um, but it's also really good for native-born American families to get to know immigrants, right? To get to know newcomers in the United States. It makes uh, us, I think, more open, more tolerant. It makes uh, give us a better sense of the, the beauty and depth of American diversity. Um, I think it also it just makes our, our lives better. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What does the research show about how dual language programs are impacting social and academic gains for students, particularly English learners? How might we promote buy-in to these programs from those who may still be uncertain about them? What role does language learning play in ensuring educational equity, and how can dual language programs help? We discuss these topics and much more with Connor P. Williams. You may recognize the name as this is Connor's second appearance on Highest Aspirations, and given his expertise and passion for the topic, we were happy to have him back. If you missed his previous episode, I encourage you to check it out. It's actually the first episode ever of Highest Aspirations. Connor is a fellow at the Century Foundation, where he writes about education, immigration, early education, school choice, and work-life balance challenges for American families. He is an expert on American educational inequity, English learner students, dual immersion programs, urban education reform, and the history of progressivism. Williams is also a regular columnist at the 74 Million. His work has also been published by the New York Times, Atlantic Monthly, Washington Post, The New Republic, Dissent, Commonwealth, The Daily Beast, Talking Points Memo, and elsewhere. We were really happy to have Connor back for this episode. Let's get started. Connor Williams, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. First time I get to say welcome back. I'm excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, uh, as I just mentioned, you were you were one of you were our first guest on Highest Aspirations when we started way back almost uh, it was last year, March of 2018. And um, happy to say that your episode remains one of our most popular. Um, during that episode, we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of dual language programs. Uh, we really got into the weeds quite a bit. And so that episode is still highly relevant a year later. So uh, if you're listening now and you haven't listened to that first episode, feel free to stop here and cue that one up. Still uh, very much relevant and evergreen. We're going to get into some more details here in this episode. But I want to start off this conversation by asking you if you think things have changed or stayed more or less the same over the last year when it comes to all things dual language. Yeah, I mean, I think that the first and most important important thing to say is that uh that no right like that on a national level on a, a state even on a local level everything is 
continuing along the same directions that it, it was going before. Sure. The, the programs are growing. They're still popular. We have more English learner students than we used to. Those students do uniquely well in these programs. Studies keep coming out showing that English learners benefit from these programs and that the peer effects of having those kids in these programs help um, English-dominant students learn the partner languages, just mm -hmm. like um, having those English-dominant students help the English learners learn, learn English. That's still all there. What I would say that's changed, and I, I mean, we, we, it hurts to say, right? But it, it, there's no question that the, the context around these programs has shifted a lot. And, and insofar as that the, the ways that the immigration politics have gotten so toxic in the United States is absolutely affecting them, right? Um, I'm gonna give you an example. Here in DC, there's this, um, this real serious concern that uh, the end of the temporary protected status program could cost uh, something like 30,000 legal immigrants from El Salvador um, their legal status in the United States. Right. If that happens, it, just a huge chunk of our area's native Spanish-speaking students are going to be gone, or they're going to be here now with undocumented families or undocumented uh, caregivers around them. That's going to shift them. I think it would be disingenuous to just pretend like that immigration controversies that are swirling in the, in the United States aren't mm -hmm. affecting multilingual programming too. Yeah, glad you brought that up right away. It's not something that we're going to necessarily specifically chat about during uh, our conversation today, but I think it is absolutely essential to bring it up and to understand that that is uh, a part of the equation and probably a pretty big part, depending on where things go. Sure. So, talking about some of your uh, some of your recent work, I, I follow your work. We're going to kind of link listeners to it at the end. Um, pretty popular around here uh, at Elevation and learning about dual language and lots of other things as well. But in some of your recent work, you point out that there are sort of more and more school districts building on some of this foundational research that you just mentioned that shows that dual language programs provide social and academic gains for students. Could you talk about some of that research and give us an example of a district or a school that's actually acting on it? Sure. Just as a matter of like pre-footnoting what I'm going to say, let me say the first and best thing you should look at is the study that uh, Robert Slater and Jennifer Steele um, put together it's for RAND and for a couple of other places, they've published it now on the Portland Public Schools dual language immersion program. So it's the Slater and Steele study of dual language immersion. You can't go wrong. They've done a couple of different versions of this study now uh, with those data. Great. We'll link to that for sure. Yeah. What I'd say is that it, the research keeps showing that if you've got these programs that are are balanced in terms of their enrollment, if you have um, native speakers of both English and of the partner language in there that they learn from one another that they that helps them acquire both languages uh, and so instead of thinking in terms of English only when we think about um, about public education we can think about English plus uh, dual language immersion lets people who are native English speakers deepen their understanding of English but also gives them um, access to another language which frankly we've we're starting to find that gives them deeper context and understanding of of all languages not just so if you're in a spanish immersion program mm -hmm. and you're an english speaker you're learning english you're also learning spanish but you're getting a more sophisticated understanding of how languages work generally yeah and that works for english learning students too right they're continuing their development in their their native language be that spanish or korean or whatever the the program's language is but they're also um, getting access to native English speaking peers, which is I think a mistake that we made in earlier iterations of bilingual ed where we didn't have, we oftentimes bilingual education was a segregated thing where it was offered to um, English learning students away in a different section of the school. Mm -hmm. These programs, they thrive on integration. 
So if you want to think about a place that's doing a really great job on that, um, you know, I've written about them this year. There's a Gwinnett County Public Schools down in Georgia comes to mind. Uh, and I've written about them recently. Um, they, they, they're a really large district, something like the, in the top 20 or so uh, in the country for total enrollment. They're, you know, in the deep south in Georgia. They've got sort of complex suburban, exurban, and some rural uh, sections of, uh, of the, the district that are, just have very complicated politics and, and history, but they also have changing demographics. They've, they've seen big growth in their English learner population and in their immigrant communities. So they've been using dual language immersion as a way to bridge some of those, those cultural diversities, both in terms of longstanding and newcomer residents. And they've done a really nice job of integrating those programs in a way that it's about language and it's also about academic development. That's great. And I'm somewhat familiar with Gwinnett, not overly so, certainly not as much as you are, but the way that you describe it, it sounds like it's a district that has kind of those uh, typical and perhaps some atypical challenges of a large district that they've been able to, um, to as, you, as you mentioned, kind of bridge uh, those gaps or, or those, uh, those cultural diversities through programs like this. That's great to hear. Yeah, I think that's right. What makes them especially interesting for me, I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy who lives in D.C. and does a lot of thinking about urban education, um, is exactly that. They, you know, Gwinnett's large in terms of total enrollment, but it's not an urban district. It's dealing with issues related to, um, you know, enrollment and catchment zones around neighborhood schools and mm -hmm. transportation issues that are, you know, that they're, they're really important for so many school districts across the country that aren't D.C., that aren't Chicago, right? That aren't New York or LA, the places that guys like me spend probably too much of our time thinking about. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. So thinking about Gwinnett and other sort of success stories, I'm interested to hear about as you talk about how this is beneficial for sort of, uh, you know, all groups of students. Um, that's something that we sort of all of us read a lot about with dual language, whether or not it's being implemented is a different story. But I'm curious about how dual language programs like these can actually transcend the classroom and have a positive impact on things like family engagement. And I'm particularly interested in, in, in those families whose native language is not English or the families of those English language or dual language learners. Oh, for sure. This is... I mean, candidly, might be the most important part of these programs. It might be more important than uh, the actual linguistic integration itself, is that you take these, these programs, they, they provide a kind of point of social contact for communities that might not otherwise come in, into contact with one another. This, by the way, is part of why one-way dual immersion, where you take like a bunch of English-speaking kids and put them in a classroom with a Spanish-speaking teacher, it, it's missing an opportunity, sure. right? To, to bring communities together for reasons that are practical, that are tangible, but that, that also end up being, I think, really deep and profound. So how do these things help? Well, they, they, they lower linguistic barriers. So if you've got uh, families who are Mandarin or Spanish speakers or Korean speakers, whatever the partner language is, um, in a dual language school, there's going to be a bunch of staff that speak that language. And so now, I mean, this is like just disclose my biases, right? My, my kids are in a two-way dual language immersion school here in DC that, uh, you know, has a, a large, large majority Latinx population. The fact that there are, you know, at least half, probably two-thirds of the staff are functionally fluent in, in Spanish makes it such an easier place for people who are native Spanish speakers and, you know, maybe still developing their English to, to engage with the school. It just makes it linguistically easier. Right. But that's, I mean, there's more to it too, right? It's not just about like being able to go and talk to your kid's teacher in the language you're most comfortable. That's kind of the, the narrow answer. The, the broader answer is what I was getting at the beginning is that it, it means that your, your English speaking kids in these schools and your English learning kids in these schools start to know each other in ways they might not otherwise. 
if we did things the way that we usually do them in the United States, these immigrant communities, these English learning uh, students would end up in schools with other kids a lot like them. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't be able to make these sort of points of contact across these cultural and linguistic lines of difference. I mean, put it simply, right, it's good for immigrant families to have regular contact with native-born American families. It helps them integrate into American society. It helps them learn language. It helps them uh, learn these little cultural norms that are hard to figure out, but that really make uh, American society tick. Um, but it's also really good for native-born American families to get to know immigrants, right? Absolutely. To get to know newcomers in the United States. It makes uh, us, I think, more open, more tolerant. It makes... Uh, give us a better sense of the, the beauty and depth of American diversity. Um, I think also it just makes our, our lives better. It makes my life richer. It makes me feel like I'm living in a more interesting place. Yeah, for sure. And I'll just, I'll just bring up a couple things. Um, you know, uh, since we last talked first episode of season one, we've obviously spoken with a lot of folks, two things come to mind um, with what you're talking about as sort of a real life example we're speaking with Donna Neary, who's a teacher down in Jefferson County Public Schools in Kentucky. Uh, and she has kind of a project-based learning program for refugee students who are called Accelerate to Graduate, who are in danger of aging out. And so basically what she did in a nutshell was to create these project-based opportunities for them to go out in the community and do things. And she has this one anecdote that is just so beautiful where she has these students going out and they're building this clay oven in this park in the middle of, uh, of Lexington. Um, and, uh, and, there is a sort of foreman um, who uh, is running this project and who is building this clay oven with the help of these students. Well, this one student who is well-versed in doing this because he did it in his home country, I think it was Congo, don't quote me on that, um, said I, I, to the teacher, I don't think that he's, he's doing this right. And the teacher said, well, you should go speak to him about it. And they kind of spoke and they got to know each other. And then you have this image, I have this image in my mind of these two people who would not be communicating with one another if this was not the case, if this project wasn't there, who are now working together to build this thing that the community is going to serve. And so I think like what you're getting at from kind of a policy perspective trickles down to those human interactions that are so crucially important that sometimes we forget about. I think that's exactly right. Only other thing I want to add to it too is that it is true, right, that dual language immersion programs that, that are two-way, that actually have these diverse communities of English dominant and English learning communities coming together in the school, that it, it's one step to get them in a school community together and to get the kids into classrooms together. It's a quite another and not inevitable step to also build the social interactions around that. Like it's not, it's not the kind of thing that just happens for sure. Right. It doesn't happen automatically. You actually, as a school and as, frankly, as, as in my case, right, as, as a parent in a school like this, you've got to make intentional choices to go challenge yourself, to go take advantage of this program in entirely like cheap or even free ways of just being around or going and engaging in the social events that maybe you wouldn't otherwise think to, about trying to find ways to make sure that your kid isn't sort of self-segregating, that you're not self-segregating mm -hmm. with the easy play dates and the easy birthday parties. It's just such a valuable possibility, but it isn't a certainty. You can have a segregated two-way dual immersion program that looks integrated on paper, but socially is every bit as, uh, as divided by linguistic, class, race, uh, and, and ethnic lines as well. Yeah, such a great point. And I, boy, I, could, I could go on a million tangents right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to stick to <laughs> some of the questions that I wanted to ask you, but you're bringing up some really important points. And I love it how you mentioned, you know, that it, it could be, it, the opportunities like these can be a result of these programs, but certainly um, are not always the case and they have to be built. And we have to just as people get over kind of some of the fear that we have um, of putting ourselves out into those kinds of situations. So another conversation for another time, um, but really interesting. 
So I want to switch gears a little bit because one of the things that we talked about in the last episode, we actually focused quite a bit on it, and it's still, I think, a big issue out there, is the difficulty of finding qualified teachers to staff these dual language programs. Last time you mentioned that some schools were relying on international teachers, which led to a lot of turnover. Curious if there's any updates here or any examples of how districts are dealing with these challenges in new or effective ways. Uh, the short answer is no. I mean, there is there is nothing happening in this space that has changed significantly changed or actually solved the situation. It's just and this is the this is still the big challenge, right? Oh no, no there's no question. Yeah. Well, I mean, think of it this way: what we do see now is we're because the trend lines in dual immersion have continued where it's more popular than ever. Every hour, every day, every week, dual language immersion is more popular than it was the preceding hour, day, or week. Yeah. Um, but our pool of potential dual language immersion teachers isn't growing, not at any kind of serious appreciable rate. That means that we have an equity problem. And the equity problem that we have is we can't decide who's going to get these programs because we have a scarcity of teachers who can credibly offer them. So no, I mean, like, we really haven't thought that hard about it, but what we have thought about is, well, we're going to have new mandates to launch new versions of dual language immersion in this, that, or the other city. I've written a lot about this. We're not going to think that hard about where we get the teachers. And then when the rubber hits the road, we oftentimes are going to allocate those dual language programs to the more privileged communities, the more English dominant communities, because those are the ones that are the noisiest about wanting it for their kids. I mean, really what we're stuck with right now is if you look at a lot of the places that are launching these programs at really large scales really quickly, they're just hiring, um, visiting teachers on, on guest visas, uh, the J1 yeah. program. That's still the way we do it. And that's not a problem alone. It's okay. I mean, uh, having cross-cultural engagement and um, interactions with teachers from Spain or teachers from China or teachers from Korea is, is great for kids. But that program is a three-year program. You can get it renewed sometimes. But look, you're baking uh, a teacher attrition into your dual language immersion programs right. if you're relying on those. That's just not going to work. So let me just say this, that if you're listening to this and you're working in a school or working in a district or working in a state level, I don't, I don't know where, and you've got some really good creative thinking on solving the shortage of, of qualified, credentialed, highly trained dual language immersion teachers in the United States, like get in touch. Um, I'm at williams at tcf.org. If you've solved it, uh, I can't promise you that I have a pot of money that I can give you or that I can sort of retire you tomorrow with your, you know, your great idea. But if you've solved it, I mean, you, your, your solution deserves to be heard and the field could use it. Yeah. So like, call, I love the call to action and, uh, and amplify, you have a great uh, audience to be able to amplify your voices and we'll do what we can as well. I love that. We'll crowdsource this thing for sure. <laughs> it's a huge problem. I mean, I, I'll be excited to see if I, I really hope to hear from somebody about this. Yeah. And we'll, we're going to put all your information up at the end as well. Um, okay. So, so assuming that we have a, a, a program in place, we have the teachers to staff it. The other challenge that I've been sort of reading a lot about lately or thinking a lot about lately is that um, there's still many people. And in some cases, they're the very families of students who could benefit most from these programs who are really uh, sort of reticent to believe that anything but an English-only approach is going to help a student learn English. Curious, um, from your perspective, what you see being done to kind of promote the, uh, the, the effectiveness of these kinds of programs for people who may be sort of a little bit in denial about how they work despite the research. Right. Yeah. So this is, a, this is another one of these challenges. I mean, the messaging around this is important. Um, 
we know that English exposure is important for, for English learning students, right? And so it, it can be intuitive to think, well, we should just expose them to as much as we can. Um, but we also know that these students benefit from continuing developing their native languages for reasons that I've already said, right? That it helps them continue to to deepen their understanding of how language works in general, which makes it easier to acquire English. Mm -hmm. So I think the messaging here, there are two different tracks the messages have to go on. One is about like policymakers, bureaucrats, administrators, a, a lot of the people in the sort of education leadership space, uh, they tend to be English dominant people in the United States and they tend to be pretty privileged. They went through K-12, they did well at it. They went through higher ed, they did well there. And then now they work at you know powerful positions in education. School worked for them and yeah. so they're experts. And so they think, well, okay, I know kind of how school goes and I was good at it. I speak English. That's my gateway to power. If I, if I weren't strong in English, then I wouldn't do well in my work. Right. They, they get that. They think about getting that, those English skills nailed down as, as a key priority for all kids, but especially for these kids who are coming in who don't speak English at home or who maybe have, you know, are still growing in their English schools when they arrive. So they're not, really that interested oftentimes, especially because the policy structures around them in engaging with how, uh, you know, it doesn't matter, say, if the immigrant kids in their, their town or in their state are making progress learning Spanish, all of the policy structures around them are saying, learn English today, learn it right now, learn it mm -hmm. as quickly as possible, learn it yesterday, hurry, be quick, otherwise there are, you know, be oversight and sanctions and problems and concerns and accountability. So, that's the messaging that we need to solve one, right? Is that dual language immersion is no threat to English acquisition. In fact, there's good evidence suggesting it might help. More and more, yeah. Yeah, the other conversation though, and this is like, a, I think even more interesting, partly because like that first one's like straightforward. We kind of know how to talk to these guys. We know we need to talk to these guys. And you know, a lot of my work day to day is talking to those guys, explaining, okay, look, I know you think English immersion matters, but it, you know, there are other ways to get at this that work better. The harder conversation is dealing with families of English learners to explain that, no, your, your home language is really valuable. Don't give up on Spanish. Don't stop speaking that at home. Uh, we don't have good data on how um, immigrant families in general, Latinx families in particular, English learners uh, and their families, how they think about bilingual education or about dual language immersion. Just nobody has those data. And so we do hear anecdotally, though, that a lot of times in dual language immersion programs, you got to sell them on how it's valuable to keep learning Spanish. They've, a lot of them thought, we're coming here, we're giving up Spanish. We're just learning English because that's what's best for our kids. Or we're just learning English, we're giving up Mandarin. We're just learning English, we're giving up Hmong, mm -hmm. whatever the language is. We just haven't figured out a way to have that conversation with diverse communities of immigrant families and uh, families of English learners in the United States. Nobody's done that that I'm aware of. That's a real challenge. Work in progress, challenge, and perhaps an opportunity as well. I hope so. All right. So speaking about that, you know, you're talking about how you just mentioned that, you know, people think that you need to have those English skills uh, nailed down. Um, you and I talked a little bit when we spoke last about the, uh, the, the intersection between, um, uh, well, the, the intersecting equity as it pertains to race, class, and language. So I'm, I'm, this is kind of a, this is probably a, a tricky question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, do you think language is equally prioritized here and, and how well do dual language programs address it? Yeah, this is serious. Uh, and I mean, we're having actually a debate that kind of around this in DC right now. There's a local dual immersion expansion where it's, there's been a real concern about who are the historically underserved communities who ought mm -hmm. to get access to dual language immersion. Is it 
English learner communities? Is it Latinx communities more generally? Is it African-American students? Is it low-income students? And it's really dangerous to get into this because, of course, dual language immersion is good for lots of kids. It's uniquely good for English learners, but it's really good for everybody. And so it's dangerous to start thinking, well, we need to rank the inequities and then find the kids who are the least served and then make sure that they get this particular linguistic equity program, Yeah. right? I mean, this is a country we're, we're reckoning daily with this, with these legacies of, of structural racism, of, of various waves of xenophobia, of lots of ways that we've made it difficult for a lot of different communities here to have access to the power and the promise of, of the American dream. So th this is a real, a real serious problem, right? We, we have uh, racial inequities, we have economic inequities. Uh, and again, the ones that I think the most about are, are often these, these sort of linguistic inequities. We're a polyglot country where we're quarter of kids in the United States speak a non-English language at home, at least, if not higher. Um, we really need those kids to do well because they're going to be a big chunk of our labor force going forward. But here's another thing I'd say, right, is that one of the challenges that, one way to think about this is, is to start from a place of intersectionality. You say, so English learner kids, right, they're on the, the quote-unquote wrong side of the inequities of language in the United States and in public education often. Uh -huh. They're also almost, overwhelmingly, children of color. Um, they're also uh, more likely to uh, be growing up in poverty than English dominant kids. Like they're on, on they are intersectionally, right? They're on, on the different side or on the, the sort of like uh, ill-served side of a bunch of different structural inequities related to race, class, and language. Sure. Um, and so I think the dual language programs can address a lot of those. They, but again, they won't do it inevitably, right? It can help us in the United States who are English dominant, native born Americans like me, we can, it can, these dual language programs can help us think about the value of these other languages. It can make Spanish like a real, um, a real privilege. It can, it can give that language cachet in a way that it wouldn't if we were doing English only education everywhere and all the time. Um, it can help by connecting us to multilingual and multicultural communities of color uh, across uh, our communities here in, in the United States. But the other thing we should just say is like, while dual language programs can help with this, like they can't solve it. And I think we should be just real clear eyed and real frank about that. Dual language programs can make some connections and they can change some priorities, but they can't solve racism, not alone. They can't solve growing economic inequalities, not on their own. They can't make xenophobia or, or sort of anxiety around immigrants go away. Those things are still deep and, and really comprehensive and those aren't gonna just vanish. Sure. Part of the recipe, perhaps, but not the, uh, not the entire thing. Yeah, it helps. It helps. It definitely helps. So I want to follow up on that uh, sort of equity piece a little bit by uh, giving people an example of, of, of a quote from some of your work and having you um, respond to it. You, you wrote recently about dual language programs in Washington, D.C., where, as you mentioned, you both work and raise two children in dual um, immersion schools. And while praising the district's effort to create more dual language opportunities, you also state, and I'll quote, um, DCPS should reserve a proportion of seats in all new Spanish language immersion uh, programs for ELs, for English learners. This benefits all students as ELs do uniquely well in dual language immersion programs and native speakers will benefit from ELs native proficiencies in their home languages. So at first glance, uh, if I'm reading that and I'm not sort of have the role I have and maybe the understanding of the education that I have, um, I, if I know very little about dual language, a policy like this could seem inequitable to me. Um, could you explain why it, you think is the right way to design these programs? Sure. Well, and this is, I mean, look, uh, I got an email the other day from some, uh, it was forwarded to me uh, from, it was a community of English speaking parents in New York City. 
anxious that the city was discriminating against English speaking kids by by prioritizing access to dual immersion for English learning kids, which is a fascinating, I mean, imagine getting, trying to get your head wrapped around this notion that somehow, in this case, wealthy English dominant families would find themselves or think of themselves as inequitably done by that way, that they would be somehow victims in this situation or you know, on the wrong side of, of educational equity. So it, this is our challenge with anything in education policy and education reform is distinguishing between equity and equality. Uh -huh. In dual language immersion programs, we say multilingualism is good for everyone. It's good for all kids. And dual language immersion can benefit everyone. And it's true, right? I mean, I've been saying it in, on this podcast, right? Yep. The better version, though, is this. It's like multilingualism is good for all kids. It's uniquely good for English learning students. And English learning students are often not part of these programs because they're on the wrong end of racial, economic, and linguistic inequities. So because we know that they're going to see academic benefits and because we know that we oftentimes gentrify them out of these programs or don't even let them have access in the first place. Which we, I should mention, we chatted about quite a bit in the previous podcast. So go ahead and listen to that if you haven't yet. Continue. For sure. Sorry. I mean, if you, one of the craziest stats I ever saw was for 20 years, California was English only, meaning their English learning kids were not allowed to be in bilingual ed. Right. During that time, they launched dozens, hundreds, I think, at least dozens of dual language immersion programs all over the state, even though they couldn't offer them to English learners. They were perfectly able to run these programs. They just weren't going to let kids who had uh, a non-English language uh, spoken at home go to them, right? So this is what I'm talking about. Like Historically, we haven't made this a priority. We've been an English-only, English-first kind of a place, and we haven't thought of in terms of an English-plus lens. And I mean, the last thing I say, right, is that this multilingualism is good for all kids crowd. They need to, to reckon with the fact that it's important to have English learners in these classes, right? If you're in an Arabic dual immersion program, having native Arabic-speaking uh, students really helps. I mean, just think about it. It's just like a simple math equation. Yeah. If you've got one Spanish-speaking teacher at the front of the class and then 26 native English-speaking students, as soon as they're not talking to the teacher, they're going to be defaulting to English. They're well, of not course, really yeah. immersed. Yeah. So the reverse of that is a foreign language is Spanish teacher. I mean, that's just the same situation you're putting. You know, you're just doing yeah. the same thing. But if you have a linguistic integration, if you've got half of that class as native Spanish speaking students, I see this every day that I drop my kids off in their school, the Spanish, uh, the native Spanish speaking students sort of prompt the use of Spanish as a, as a social language too. And so that peer effect is so valuable. It's, it's essential. I mean, you can't like yeah. as a language teacher myself for, for 17 years, it is absolutely an essential part of, of getting everybody on board. I mean, you're always going to get those few kids who are just rock stars in the language or talented or academically gifted or whatever the case may be, who excel um, in, in a program that's kind of one way. But when you don't have, and I, I worked at, should say, in two schools, one school I was teaching Spanish where almost probably half the class was, was heritage speakers and the others were, uh, were native speakers of English. And having that diversity in the class was, at first, was really challenging, I'll say, for me as a teacher who is really not trained at all, but certainly not trained to work with those two groups. But once I realized the power of that and I harnessed it, boy, incredible gains. Oh, for sure. There's no question about this. Great. All right. So I want to um, kind of zoom out a little bit um, and talk a little bit about how you see supporting EL and DLX uh, success as part of a larger long-term economic strategy for the U.S. We've talked a little bit about this, and I think you have a way of, uh, of synthesizing this information in a way that I can't. So I'm curious to see what you think about that. 
Right. I mean, this is, it gets into that messaging issue around dual immersion that I was just talking about, right? Like multilingualism is good for all kids. Uh, it helps everyone succeed in the global economy with their 21st century skills. And the, the world is shrinking. And if you can speak Mandarin, you can launch a company. Like it's true, right? All of that is true. I don't disagree with that line of thinking. Uh, my Spanish skills help me in my day-to-day -day work. Uh, you know, I spent year, over a decade learning them in, in U.S. schools and, and then in college and continuing to practice them, and it helps me a lot. Uh, my Welsh language skills help keep me married to my Welsh-American uh, uh, wife. Both very I, important. Yeah, well, right. I would rather be married than employed <laughs> if I had to choose. But <laughs> here's what I would say. Is, like, I don't think we actually really have a strong evidence base, one, that our current dual language programs actually deliver proficient multilingual adults. And we don't know that really. Um, because if you want to go off and use your Spanish skills to launch a new company in Venezuela or to uh, connect with um, global suppliers in Mexico for your whatever business, you, your corporation you're working for in the United States, you need to have some really strong language skills. You can't go stumbling around. Uh, especially given the, the degree to which machine translation is getting better. If you're going to have a value add as a truly multilingual adult, you need to have a really deep amount of multilingualism. And I just don't know that we know that we're delivering that right now. Again, yeah, partly, I would add, you need other skills as well. Like you don't, you don't just yeah. need language skills. I mean, my, my parents used to say to me all the time when I, when I majored in Spanish in college and I graduated and I came out, you know, highly proficient, probably fluent in Spanish, uh, them saying to me, wow, you, you're, you're still, you have everything that you need to be successful. And well, you know, unfortunately, Spanish at the time and probably still now, and, and this is, I don't think this is a good thing at all, obviously, was not necessarily a prestigious language that you could, you know, all of a sudden go into business with. Not to mention that I lacked sort of some of the other skills to be able to, for example, open a company in Venezuela. So I'm glad you're getting at that. And I'm interrupting only because I think it's a good yeah. point like that language doesn't solve all the problems that we have. It's a part of the equation. No question, right? These are, there's multicultural competencies too. This gets back to the two-way versus one-way dual immersion thing. You've got one teacher who's visiting from uh, Cordoba, Spain, uh, and they're the only native Spanish speaker in your English-speaking classroom's life. You're going to learn a little bit. Maybe you become a Real uh, Madrid fan or a Barcelona <laughs> fan or maybe a Cordoba uh, fan. I don't know. You get a little bit of cultural exposure too, but that's not the same as being in a classroom where half of the students are from Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Colombia, and some you know, other countries where they're going to actually be you know, prompting real conversations and powerful conversations about cross-cultural competencies. So dual immersion is about language and it's about culture. And we don't always get into that second part because it's a lot more complicated and it's harder to get at with policies. But what we do know is this around our future economic benefits of dual language immersion is that it won't hurt those English-dominant kids. I think, again, I think we should be careful selling how much it's going to help them, but it won't hurt them to, to have some intermediate proficiency in Spanish or, or even advanced proficiency when they go off to college right. or in Mandarin or in Vietnamese. But what we do know is we know it's going to help our English learning students a ton, right? They'll be able to learn more academic content earlier in their careers, uh, and they'll also learn English deeper and, and better over time if we have them in dual language instruction. What that means then is they're going to be in a much stronger position for long-term academic and then professional success. And we've got good demographic research showing that guys like me who were born in Michigan, um, native-born Americans, we're barely replacing ourselves right now. All of our population growth going forward, or a huge chunk of it, is immigrants and children of immigrants. So mm -hmm. they're the ones who will be working and paying the taxes that make it possible for you, the adult listening to this podcast now, to retire. 
the better they do as workers, as productive members of our, our, our country, the better your retirement programs will be, the more solvent we'll be as a country. And that's what I think. When I think about economic viability, I think it's about doing as well as we can by all kids with a special focus on these kids who are going to provide us that like extra boost of dem uh, demographic population uh, uh, numbers that, that really will make the difference for, for all of us who are going to get old soon. Yeah. And again, and that's a really good point. Again, that special focus isn't going to take anything away from anyone else either. Yeah. Which I'll throw in there. All right. Well, one of the last questions I asked you in our last conversation was, um, I asked you what you see happening in the space over the, over the next five to 10 years. Uh, that was last year. Uh, we've seen some changes, as, as you've talked about. We haven't seen some changes, as you've talked about as well. So um, I, I want to ask you the same question, but narrow it down a bit. In the next year or so, um, you know, what do you see happening? Where do you see this all going? Yeah, so definitely, I mean, the same pressures are going to continue. We're not going to see, we haven't seen a lot of federal leadership to you know, invest in some new dual language uh, supporting program that, that you know, wasn't already there. Um, you know, I mean, a couple of things I haven't mentioned, you know, Utah continues to build out dual language immersion across the state, Delaware as well. Um, places like uh, North Carolina and, and, and a couple other states have competitive grant programs to start launching more of these dual language immersion uh, schools. Um, California is probably the most interesting place, though. They have this thing called Global California 2030, yep. which is their effort to launch a bunch of dual language immersion programs, uh, really as the ending of their English-only policies that, that went away in 2016. So it'll be really interesting, and, and I'm hoping to do some work on that, I mean, how to make sure that California, as they rebuild bilingual education in that state, that they do it in a way that's equitable and, and you know, that conduces to better academic achievement. Um, New York is in the midst of a couple of policy changes, making it easier to launch dual language immersion programs uh, with a focus on English learners. They, the New York City actually just announced they're going to uh, launch something like four dozen new um, dual language programs yeah, in their universal pre-K system. So yeah, like there's some, there's some things coming. Um, they're all still in that context of not having the teachers really to launch them for every kid yet. And so then that means we're going to keep having that pinch about deciding who's going to get access. Uh, and, you know, uh, we'll see. Uh, again, the immigration backdrop is a real concern for a lot of these programs. I don't know, man. It's going to be an interesting 12 months. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm glad you mentioned all, all those uh, states. We were going to get into that and uh, fit really nicely into that particular question. And there's a lot going on. We're going to actually do um, uh, some some work, an episode here on some things that are happening in California in the future as well. So listen for that. Sure. Um, so uh, I asked you this question uh, last time and I ask every guest, um, is there a book or a resource that uh, is having a profound impact on you either personally or professionally now or has in the past that we can add to our ever-growing library of resources? Definitely. I, right now, it's, it's not a book, but it's the writing and activism of the Integrated Schools Organization. Um, and they're out in, in uh, Los Angeles. The founder, uh, Courtney Mickerton, is, is doing some really interesting and really, I hope, I think, I want to believe, powerful work with privileged white families who are thinking about their place in public education, especially in urban public education in LA, right? They want to, she's trying to spark conversations amongst these, these privileged families about how to, to put equity first when they're interacting with U.S. communities, um, with, with different communities in LA and also with um, LA public education. She's done some really cool stuff. She had a really fascinating conversation with a guy named Chris Stewart, who's a, a, 
really strong school choice activist and African-American who's skeptical about white people's intentions related to integration. Um, and she and him had this really profound and productive conversation that she hosted. Just her activism is, is really, it gives me at least a sense that we could get to a place where we weren't always competing around programs like dual language immersion, where we could actually start seeing meaningful integration, not just on, on paper, but also in terms of how people interact in these schools. So I'd urge people to take a look at her and her work. Well, it's great for the reasons that uh, I have not looked at her work at all, and I'm sure many of the listeners haven't either. So we will uh, link to that information so you can take a look at that as well. You've mentioned a couple times how people can get in touch with you, but let's uh, take a second just to let people know how people can, uh, can find out more about what you're doing or get in touch with you. Sure. Well, the easiest thing is to, you know, find me on Twitter, I suppose, at uh, Connor P. Williams, and that's C-O-N-O-R, just one N. Um, but I also write at uh, tcf.org and then uh, at the 74million.org. You can email me your smart answers for bilingual teacher shortages, of course, at williams at tcf.org. And um, God, please do, because... We're crowdsourcing. Yeah, yeah. Really need your ideas on this. <laughs> That's great. And I would uh, highly recommend, uh, just as, as a reader of, uh, of Connor's work, taking a look at it, we, uh, we put a lot of your work up on our What We're Reading newsletter. Um, you can find that on our Elevation community. We'll post to that um, as well. Um, and Connor, uh, it was a real pleasure speaking with you again. Appreciate you coming on for the second time, the first and only guest so far to be on Highest Aspirations twice. So thanks for coming on and thanks for everything you're doing. Hey, thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime you like. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.